Today, we're talking to Jason from PKWare about having parallel routes of growth in your company, ChatGPT, and more. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I typically like to start with like, what is PKWare? Uh, I've got somewhat of an idea, but I was hoping you could explain it to me. Sure. So uh, PKWare, we started in 1986, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The early claim to fame was uh, the invention of the zip file format by, by the founder, Phil Katz. Uh, so that debuted in 1989. So, you know, as, a, as an organization, the, the company's always been about, about data and at the time, obviously, data compression. You know, as the company grew, uh, you know, Phil Katz passed away in 2000 or 2001, you know, so the company's gone through a couple of iterations since then. And as the company grew, they got more and more uh, data security minded, right? So the first step into that was strong encryption on top of the zip file format. And then, you know, through the 2010s, uh, that's where they really start to move into more of an enterprise play as it relates to encryption. And customers started asking, okay, how do we, we know that we want to encrypt, but how do we find the data, right? So a lot of investments are made into data discovery, obviously the key management behind encryption and encryption policies. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, for the enterprises, a lot of automation around everything, a lot of orchestration around that. So uh, at that time, though, it was still really file-centric, um, unstructured files. So finding sensitive information in files and then being able to protect it in 2020, uh, we acquired a company called Data Guys, and Data Guys, uh, their their strength was more in those data stores, so like databases, big data, cloud data stores. So uh, by putting the two companies together, you know, we've got right now uh, what I consider to be the only end-to-end solution that can find data anywhere it exists in the enterprise and then offer a variety of protection options uh, once that sensitive information is found. Is it mostly protection-centered, not search-centered? Yeah, definitely not search centered, right? So when we when we talk about encrypt when I talk about encryption anyways, I mean encryption really uh by by definition breaks two things. One, it breaks collaboration and uh it breaks search, right? Because if the information's encrypted, you shouldn't be able to search over it, right? So uh, a lot of our efforts are how do we actually, you know, take those deficits, you know, because companies need to encrypt their most sensitive information. I mean, it's just a given, but how do we make that into a more usable experience for uh, the end user who really all they care about is getting their job done, right? They don't care about encryption, right? They just want to make sure that they can do their jobs and the company's concerned they want their the, them to do their jobs uh, safely. Yeah, and if it's not, then you get that whole shadow IT thing happening. They'll do what they need to do. <laughs> to, exactly, to exactly. Job. Yeah. I've gotten to do, I won't name any names, but I've gotten to do some projects with some, you know, larger companies that had sensitive information and their processes to interface with us were so difficult. They're like, yeah, we just grab like a, like a Google Doc account so that you and I can work together because we need to collaborate on a document. And I'm like, oh, and then later I found out that that's called like shadow IT. I was like, oh, interesting. (laughs) Right, right. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the, problems that we actually solve, um, and it's, it's not a well-known problem, is, you know, if, if, if you and I wanted to share something encrypted, right, and I, I send something to you, and now my IT department goes and tries to figure out what I sent to you, they, they can't figure it out, right, because they, I mean, if I'm encrypted by definition, you and, you and I are the only two people that can see it, right? So part of our solution is we give those IT departments the opportunity to kind of insert a contingency key in. 
so that in the event that the company needs to decrypt the data, because at the end of the day, the company owns the data, right? They should be able to decrypt it. So that's the capability that we give versus, you know, two people just going off the shelf and finding something to to do that end-to-end encryption. And how did you get involved with this company? That's a, a little bit of an interesting story. I was actually brought on in 2019 uh, to form a new product team around uh, an email security product. And uh, the company actually transacted. We got a new private equity firm in early 2020. The overall philosophy of growth uh, was a little bit different with the new private equity firm, uh, very acquisitive, you know, grow, th- grow through acquisition and uh, combine strengths of companies. So the, the strategy changed. And, um, you know, and about a year later, I found myself in the, uh, in the CTO seat. Oh, nice. You went from coming in, build some product to now you're, you understand I do M&A. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, you know, a wild, a wild ride early on. And, and, and honestly, I've, I think I learned a lot in the process. What was the most important thing that you learned from your first M&A experience? That's a great question. Most important thing. You know, I think the first learning is, is that it's, it's really, really challenging to take uh, two different kind of corporate cultures and put them together. And it's not something that you can do overnight. Um, and it's not necessarily something that you want to do at all in some situations, you know, um, our product lines and our product teams are, are, are different enough where you don't want to water them down by forcing them all to do the same thing. So I feel what was really important was to kind of identify that next layer of leaders, uh, engineering leaders over each product so that they could kind of define that culture for those teams uh, independently and, and really kind of foster that, that teamwork amongst those teams. How did you do that? How did you find these leaders and grow them? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Most of them and most of our promotion has been done uh, internally. So what we've had is uh, I, I was really lucky. We had a couple of individuals on the team that were really focused more on growing and developing their people than I've historically encountered. You know, usually when you meet an engineering leader, it's because that engineering leader was the best engineer, right? And we definitely had people who had very strong engineering talent, but they also had a a strong focus on their people and they uh, took interest in their people's careers and gave them opportunities to learn and grow. And then, you know, as, as PKWare has been growing, there's been more and more opportunities for leaders to step up. And it's really just those people that have demonstrated the interest and the capability, you know, through either other small projects or, you know, we, we, we start them off, you know, small, right. You know, we'll start them off with uh, a smaller team, maybe not direct management responsibilities, but, you know, you're responsible for technical leadership. And once you've demonstrated that you've got the ability to lead technically, you know, start kind of layering in some of those HR responsibilities. And yeah, so all, all but one of uh, my engineering product line leaders was uh, internal promotion. Oh, nice. Do you ever make mistakes, promote people, and then they end up hating it? You know, I, I think there's a perception in tech where, the real way to get ahead is to become a manager, become a director, you know, become a CTO or whatever. And people have a drive towards that without kind of understanding what that means. So what, what we've tried to do is, you know, as you get those initial leadership experiences, we try to get that initial leadership experience to be kind of a, a junction point to, hey, do I want to go down that personnel management route? 
or do I really want to stick with the technology and technology leadership? You know, and mm. we've had people that have expressed interest in both directions. So, you know, giving people the ability to continue to lead, to continue to influence the organization without being, you know, a quote unquote manager or director. I mean, that's that's been important. So it's a long winded answer to say that I don't think we've necessarily made mistakes, but we give people the opportunity to kind of try before they buy. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've found that to be true as well. What you what you said about people thinking that that's the way and they're not wrong. There's definitely a way to get ahead. But there's like the the asterisk, like, but, but you might not enjoy how you spend your time. And so you can also get ahead on a technical level. So if you want to spend your time like that, figure out how, you know, that self-awareness of how you want to spend your time and then look for a path that allows you to do that like more. And that's where I find a lot of the CTOs are good at like coaching people through this. I, I'll have a lot of people tell me that they actively try to discourage highly talented technical people from wanting to go into management unless if they really, really want to, um, because I was technical, it's an entirely different job. Like it's an entirely different job with a whole different set of skills uh, than just being a good engineer. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, I've been in a lot of organizations where really the only way to get ahead was to become the manager, become the director. And they kind of combined that technical leadership and that, that people leadership roles together. Mm-hmm. And there are people that can handle that. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are, that are good at both. And I think as a technical leader, you, you still have to have those technical capabilities so that, you know, you can call BS on a team, you know, and, and, and not just rely on what a team is telling you uh, to be true. But, you know, at the end of the day, some people, when they get into it, they realize that, hey, you know, I really want to go more kind of like that architect route versus going into people management. Because the higher you go in people management, the more it focuses on the people and the less it is on the technology, you know? Yeah. And I have seen companies that are intentional about creating those multiple, those parallel routes on how they can advance as as a technical individual and then how they can advance through management. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was when they don't have those, well, you have less success with the people growing. <laughs> but what you'll find or what I've, what I've noticed a little bit as a trend is that the engineers that have a lot of success on the single path are the ones that figure out that if they write and produce content, then they become a person inside of their space, inside of their niche, and they're speaking at conferences and doing different things. And then they become significantly more valuable and usually end up in like a consultative type role where they're bouncing around with some of the bigger companies. I bring this up because it's almost like if you've got this motivated, driven person and you don't have parallel paths and they want to improve there and they don't want to go into management, if you don't have that path, they will often figure out this other way, which the net result is them leaving your company. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, and, and, and honestly, you know, I think uh, one of the things that, you know, at least in, in my worldview, I don't think necessarily somebody leaving the organization to find the next step. I don't think that's a, a, a bad thing necessarily. I mean, especially if like, there was some intentionality behind that of, Hey, you know, I know what you're looking for next in your career. We're going to give you some experiences here so that you can kind of build on what you learn to move in that direction. But ultimately if like that opportunity exists outside the organization, I mean, I, I, I'm sure everybody you talk to and yourself included, you've probably experienced, you know, Hey, the, the best move for somebody was for them to get promoted out of the organization. You know, sometimes it is. Yeah. And 
if you see that happening a lot and you're unsatisfied with it as the leader of that organization, you can start asking your question of why is this <laughs> happening? Maybe, maybe I need to structure the system that has a path for high performers. And that way, you know, not under the context of you keeping them forever, but in the sense that at least you can have a, a more clear, direct path for them to hang out with you. That's why I think I've seen a lot of the companies that are, you know, have a hundred plus people, they'll do that thing where they let you hop around on teams and take different missions and projects. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We've got a fairly large team over in India and I'm actually going to visit them uh, tomorrow. When we get off this call, I'm, I'm oh, going nice. to be driving, <laughs> driving up to Minneapolis. The feedback that I got the, the first time that I visited those teams was they just, they wanted more experiences, right? You know, they're like, this mm-hmm. is exciting. Now we have more products. We want the opportunity to work on different products or we want the opportunity to work with different technologies. And, you know, we're, we're lucky because of the nature of what we do, which is, you know, searching for data and all these different systems that you can work with a bunch of different technologies. You know, you can work with AWS, you can work with Azure, you can work with Hadoop, you can work with, you know, Teradata, like you, you name it, we're out there and we we need to gain some level of expertise in it. So if people have an interest and, and, and a passion in a specific technology, we can usually find a road for them, um, which is a little bit I think more unique at PK where than other places I've been, but at the same time, yeah, you're 100% right. You know, giving people uh, those, those different experiences to try to find what they're passionate about. I mean, that's absolutely important and it's harder to do the smaller you are. Right. Yes. And were, were you guys largely in India prior to the acquisition with data guys? No. So that was new with data guys. Data guys had uh, the bulk of their engineering over in India. So that was a, a new experience for me as well. I think for us, the biggest challenge is just time zones, right? You know, yeah. what is it, 10 and a half hours, 11 and a half hours right now? And finding times that everybody can meet, you're infringing on somebody's evening, right? Yeah. I think the way that we've managed that was, you know, early on, there was like this attitude of like, let's have... Uh, a lot of cross time zone teams so we can get to know each other, get to know each other's strengths and way of working and stuff. Um, but now that we're over two, two years in, we've kind of gone back to let's have uh, teams that are all in the same time zone because they're a lot more effective and they get a lot more done because they can have all of those conversations in real time, you know. So, yeah, that's from a learnings, key learnings of, you know, my experiences at PK where that's been a big one is just how do you how do you deal with kind of like a more a more global workforce? And, and we've got people all over. I mean, I've got a guy down in Ecuador. You know, I've got someone right now who's working and I believe is in Italy right now, but, you know, likes to travel the world. So um, no chat GPT for them. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> So one of the other questions I had for you about the acquisition was when you gave me a rough timeline earlier about you know you joining private equity and acquisitions and all of that. Were you a part of the process picking data guys? Yeah, yeah. So uh, as we were going through diligence, you know, they involved uh, pretty much every team inside of the company, and obviously in. Um, the engineering space, we were, we were heavily involved in not just evaluating the technology, you know, from like, a, does, it, does it fit into our overall story perspective, but, uh, you know, is it, is it something that we can work with and is it something that uh, we want to take on and maintain? How did it work with you interacting or your organization interacting with your customers, figuring out what their needs are? and then resulting in an acquisition, or is that not how it happens? It's just you guys needed something, you knew you needed it, and you went and got it. 
It's a little bit of both, right? You know, I know that for a number of years, there was a lot of conversation about, hey, you can do what you can do with files. It'd be really great if you could do that with databases. And there was talk about, you know, what it would take to build that out. So, you know, when this opportunity came along, it was a little bit of a no-brainer in terms of, yes, this is very complimentary. This is something that we can work with, right? I will say that in a, in a lot of cases, you know, especially when you're working for private equity, they bring you a lot of opportunities and say, hey, on the surface, does this look like a good fit? So even before you get into really digging deep, it's like, do you see a path towards, you know, complementary products? Do you see a path towards, you know, being able to sell to the same person inside the organization that we're already selling to? So you kind of factor all of those things in. So by the time you're actually evaluating the tech, you've you've kind of solidified that, yes, this is going to be complimentary at, at, at a business perspective. I love it. No, thanks for sharing that. I try not to dig too deep with the, the M&A stuff to get to the sensitive stuff. I try to get like right to the surface, yep. right to the edge. Yeah. AI was listed as something that you like to, to talk about. Um, <laughs> are you guys using it or is it just in your personal life? So for me, it's just in my in my personal life. I mean, we do use uh, machine learning from a sensitive data detection perspective. You know, I mean, there's there's only so much that you can do with regular expressions. But you know, I mean, we're kind of evaluating it across the business, and and where can it have impact? I mean, I think ChatGPT was a little bit of a bomb that went off in the industry. That uh, you know, I mean. To say we didn't see it coming, I think we'd be fooling ourselves, but to see it come that fast, you know, I think that was the shock to everybody's system, right? So I think from our perspective, it's like, okay, how can this help make our developers more efficient, right? Without doing what Samsung did, right? You know, how can it make our... Yeah. um, How can it make our marketing teams more efficient? You know, how can it make support more efficient? You know, I mean, I've already seen tools out there that you can ingest an entire support case and say, all right, generate the knowledge base article. Well, that, that sounds great to me, you know? So I don't look at this, like we, I don't look at this as a, this is going to eat all of our jobs. It's just going to take all of our jobs and make them that much more productive and help us get to a lot of those things that we couldn't get to historically. You know, I mean, I'm not completely naive. I mean, I know there's probably going to be some some learnings, (laughs) but you know, I, I tend to focus on the positives that it can bring. I'm an optimist, and I just believe that this has been happening since the beginning of time. The only difference now is the rate at which it'll happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we went from horses to cars, that was a relatively slow process. You could see that coming. I've seen the, you know, people at the checkout at the grocery store. First, <laughs> they had two self-checkouts. Then it took one aisle. Now it's like 80% self-checkouts. And I was like, you definitely saw that coming over the past five years. You just saw it growing. But GPT and its ability to decimate an industry overnight is not far-fetched. And so I was just, I've been thinking a lot personally about not whether if it'll happen, but just how it will come about, right? Like, let's say you wake up tomorrow and there's no need for like this very specific role that employs millions of people or hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of people. And it, well, it's going to take some time for buyers to figure it out, but helping those people transition to something else is going to be the thing that, that we're going to want to pay attention to, like how quickly we can get them back into something else, because you don't want a situation where everyone's sitting around, sitting on their hands, because that's when like 
social unrest happens. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I've been listening to a couple of your episodes, you know, while you, where you've been discussing this. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a real concern. I believe that, you know, while, while the technology itself is, is pretty far along, I, it, it, you know, it's still very prone to like these hallucinations and that's going to get better. I mean, GPT-6 is probably going to be like, you know, this amazing thing that I can't even fathom right now. But uh, I think that's why we have to stay close to it and we have to understand its capabilities. We have to understand its limitations. Yeah. And as a business, right, you want to make sure that you're taking full advantage of everything that it has to mm-hmm. offer, because if you don't, your competitors will, right? So, I mean, yeah, I think the the one truth, the big truth in there is just the pace, the pace of change. You know, I think social, we're still kind of recovering from that wave, you know, and now like the AI wave is going to come a lot faster than the, the social wave did. Oh, yeah. I'm 100%. It's happening fast. Have you seen, have you played with any of the apps now that uh, OpenAI now has their app store integration store? Have you played with any of those? haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. Do you have a a favorite or anything exciting that you've seen in there? I did see one example of somebody hooking it up to essentially like the Google API or live search API. So you can say, hey, go research this and it will actually go pull live results and then come back to you with information. Like Bing already does that, right? But Mm -hmm. you can... It does it in a different way. So I've seen, uh, who, who was it? Expedia did it. You could say, hey, book me a trip to this place. And then it'll ask you a couple questions back and forth. And then it books the, the trip for you. That was kind of neat. Uh, but that's just, you know, 101. Give it a year of people figuring out creative stuff with this app store. And there will be a lot of things that the chat GPT will be able to do for you. I mean, have you seen the GitHub code? assistant? Yeah. Yes, I have. That's bonkers, dude. Yeah, I know. It's, it's incredible. I think you kind of hit on something that's, that's, that's key, right? So ChatGPT and what it can provide in that scenario and Expedia and what they can provide in that scenario, right? So really Expedia is still there. We still need all of that code. We know we still need mm-hmm. the, the booking engine behind it. And sure, maybe their developers are actually interacting with AI to make their code better. Who knows, right? But at the end of the day, it's like I, I always look at like the especially the conversation of the, the, the language learning models. I look at that as like a better entry point into uh, this just this vast knowledge base that exists in the world. Right. And you're still going to need those specific developers out there that are you know creating those domain specific solutions, you know. Yeah, it's definitely just a condensing Right. And, and I, because you did hear other episodes, you probably heard me say it puts the premium on people that have drive, right? right? Because now if you have drive, you have so much more ability to do things without needing a bunch of other people and a lot of money. You can make more change and then you'll just, I think it's like anything. You'll just see those people rise to the top, right? The cream rises to the top. So. Right. And you'll see those people that are really good at interrogating AI get ahead a lot faster. You know, I always felt like some of the best engineers out there were like the ones that had the most like Google foo (laughs) at one point in time. And now I think you're going to see like the people that really understand language and and how to interrogate these models. They're going to do very, very well for themselves. Prompting is a legitimate skill. And I am very happy that I'm decent at it. Uh, 
because I interact with all sorts of people in my life, right? From non-technical people who have tried GPT and they're like, I tried it. I said, you know, how to have it write like a three page research paper on this and it didn't really come back with anything like too good. And I was like, well, let me talk to you. Like if you're going to write this research paper, like let's break it down into different thoughts you're going to have. And then you can have it act like somebody who's knowledgeable in that area and give you some opinion on some things that you want to discuss or ask it for some topics for the paper. And I was showing them really quickly on my phone, like the different ways you can, as you said, interrogate or prompt the AI so that you can get what you want from it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm the type of person, like I'm I'm afraid of a, a blank piece of paper, right? There's nothing more terrifying to me than, you know, a blank whiteboard, blank presentation, whatever. What I found with ChatGPT is I can actually use it as almost like a sounding board to you give me some ideas. I'm going to flesh them out on my own, you know, and it's 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 still going to be me. It's not going to be ChatGPT, but like just to get kind of that starting point and get my thoughts organized, it's, you know, it's that whole adage, you know, developer runs into a problem and the best thing you can do as an engineer is grab another engineer start talking to them about your problem and in the middle of it you're like never mind i've got it you know i figured it out yep. right and it's kind of the same thing with 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 this ai as you can start having the conversation be like all right yeah okay now i'm on the on the right track it's it's just another form of getting your ideas out there and getting some immediate feedback on them you know 100% i have found myself i just have it as you know it's a tab that's always open on my iphone and i use it regularly i'll ask my wife something i'll be like i don't know and rather than doing a Google search, I'll just go ask GPT because it is essentially the concept of read all the Google results and then tell me the answer, which is the thing I'm going to do anyways. So nine times out of 10, it has that information it needs to give me the answer I want. And if it doesn't, then I go old school, as we as we will now say, and actually do a Google search and, right. and read through and figure out my own. Condi- That's what we're doing as humans. We're reading the information. We're condensing it. We're trying to figure out what's valid. And then we come up with some basic assumption to move forward. And I think it's great that this technology does it. I think we'll solve amazing types of problems and maybe Ray Kurzweil dream will come true. (laughs) Maybe we'll get inside those machines. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. What's the call to action? What problems are people experiencing? And they're listening to this show and they're like, oh, I'm experiencing this thing at work. And PK, where's the solution? I need to go to their website and check it out. Sure. Great question. I think the problem that people are experiencing is right now, uh, data generation is at a pace that is just unparalleled. You know, I mean, I I think I was reading something that, you know, we're going to generate more data in this year than the past, like 50 combined, something like that. So I think for a lot of companies, they don't even know what they have, where it is. And uh, users are so enabled now that they can, you know, grab content, you know, out of Salesforce or, you know, out of uh, the ERP system. And they're going to slap that into an Excel uh, document, and then all of a sudden that finds its way into a PowerPoint presentation, and then all of a sudden you have this potentially sensitive information like pretty much everywhere, you know, that gets uploaded into Dropbox, whatever, right? So our solution helps uh, these enterprises get a good understanding of where their sensitive information is at. Once they figure that out, then they can reason over it and say like, okay, based on where this is, what should I do to protect it? You know, should I should I be looking at encryption? Should I be automatically redacting the information anytime a credit card hits the user's desktop? Should I just redact it? You know, and obviously the company itself has to decide you know what policy is best, and that's usually based on user type. So 
we can tackle some pretty complicated problems as it relates to sensitive data. The other thing that I would say along with that is that we have a pretty unique capability in that we can reason across different data stores that uh, other other places stay away from. I mean, my number one example of that is uh, mainframes, right? You would think that here in 2023, we wouldn't be talking about mainframe computing, but, you know, there's over 14,000 mainframes in the United States, and that number's been pretty steady for the past 20 years, so they're not going anywhere, and a lot of organizations have a lot of engineers that are kind of aging out of that mainframe environment, so they don't, they don't know what they have there, you know, and we're positioned to be able to help those organizations understand what they have, make sure that the data that they have out there hasn't been corrupted. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different use cases that we can solve, but at the core of it is helping these organizations understand their data and where it is throughout the organization. And what's the website? PKware.com. There you go. We'll put a link in the show notes. And then are you guys hiring now or are you kind of standing still? Where are you guys at? I would say we're, I feel like we're always hiring. Right now, honestly, it's a little bit slower than it has been. And I think you're probably hearing Dude, that from a lot of tech companies. Everybody's saying that. Yeah. 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 Um, part, yep. of the, part of the reason is, is we don't have a ton of attrition. You know, our employees uh, definitely stick around for uh, quite some time. I and mean, we've got some people who have been here 25, 30 years, which is in, incredible to me. But, you know, we always have senior software engineer posted on our website because, you know, when you run across that great software engineer, you want to take advantage of it kind of regardless. You'll usually find find a space for it. So, you know, if, if, if we found somebody who was passionate about data security, passionate about encryption, you know, and, and had all of the technical skills, and we work across pretty much every stack, you know, from .NET to Java to everything in between, as I mentioned before, mainframes. So we usually have a spot for an engineer that's passionate about our space. Very smart, right? You never know when that, I call them magic people, when that magic person is going to run across your life and you're like, I need to grab that person now. So Right. And we've all worked with them, right? Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, you always got to have the door open so that they can just walk right through, right? Yes. I have definitely hired a handful of people like on the spot, first interview, just because I, I was like, this is the person. And I'm a smaller company, right? We're less than 20 people. But sure. sometimes you just know. Sometimes you're just like, this is that person. And uh, you want to, you know, that they're sitting there chaining job interviews day after day after day, and you want to grab them, you know? Yeah, I actually had that experience this morning. Talked to somebody, immediately called <laughs> the hiring manager, and was like, "We we got to get this person in." So, uh, and, oh, and nice. They, they actually accepted right before this call, so it was it was what? pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. That that's a good feeling when you got to go out of town and you get something done like this right away. So, oh, totally. Yeah. You're having a good day then, Jason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.